welcome everyone to episode 11 of the citizen's guide um, we're so excited that you're joining us today uh, we got have a super busy show today we're going to talk about last week's vice presidential debate uh, some recently disclosed information about the trump administration's child separation policy uh, some information about early voting that is important um, ongoing stimulus negotiations in congress and then finally we're going to review some polling in uh, some important Senate races that we think he should be paying attention to. So Connor, let's start with uh, the vice presidential debate that took place um, last Wednesday in Utah, I believe, uh, mm -hmm. where Kamala Harris and Mike Pence um, squared off. What, what, what can you tell us about that? So there was a vice presidential debate. It seems like it happened two weeks ago and you know, it happened. I think people had different expectations and it either met, exceeded, or fell short of those, those all three options. Um, like nothing outstanding happened besides a fly landing on the vice president's head. <laughs> and then the rapid turnaround of the Biden merch team with a fly swatter. I thought that was probably, <laughs> that was a good sign for developing a Corona vaccine yeah <laughs> um but in general you saw mike pence repeating the topics that president trump has been saying in a calm way that unnerved me and i'm sure unnerved a lot of people and you saw kamala harris like bring facts to the debate i think you saw i think you saw what could have been a presidential debate if Donald Trump wasn't a lunatic and kept interrupting and Joe Biden was able to finish his thoughts. Um, I don't know. What did you, what did you think? I have more, but yeah. Yeah. I don't have a ton about this. I, I mean, I hope people found the chance to watch it or at least watch like clips of it. Um, and to go off one of your points, I think what we saw on Wednesday could very well be um, the general election matchup of 2024, which is, a million years away and I don't want to talk about it, but I think that's kind of a possibility that we should consider. Um, I think Kamala Harris uh, exceeded my expectations, even though my expectations for her are always very high because I know she is such a capable politician and a capable leader and a capable debater. I think she carried herself very well and being a black woman, she had such a, such a line to toe and I think she did very well. Um, Mike Pence performed about as well as I thought he would. And that's not very well. I think he's boring. I think he uh, lies straight to your face and doesn't have any, any remorse about that because a lot of what he said was a lie, um, especially when it comes to the coronavirus response, especially as it comes to uh, Kamala Harris's record on criminal justice, um, things like that. Uh, one note I have is that that potentially was the last debate of the 2020 general election cycle. There are, uh, I think right now there's one more debate planned because one got canceled, um, but it's really unclear whether or not Joe Biden and Donald Trump are going to be able to agree to another debate. Um, but I think, yeah, I think Kamala's kind of the, the first 15 minutes were really important where she basically said, uh, how much of a failure this administration has been, especially with coronavirus, which we're all very well aware of. We're all living it. Um, Pence's worst moment to me was when he refused to admit that there was uh, systemic racism in our country. 
uh, which that that can be such a huge topic for us to discuss. But it you can't look at you know the last two hundred years of history and say oh no there there isn't systemic racism in this country. So it was just very interesting to see him um, say that so clearly on the national stage. Um, but yeah, also saw are, a lot of like pivots. Yeah, he, thought, he did not. Not Pence, to, yeah. Pence did not answer any of the questions, especially when it came um, to his stance on abortion, which anyone who has followed his career knows that he is a staunch anti uh, abortion politician and you know has even shown support for criminalizing doctors and women who seek abortions uh, which is just horrifying and just representative of a world that no longer exists in my mind. He also just he echoed some of the president's points he didn't answer how a Trump-Pence administration would project pre-existing conditions if the ACA was struck down by the Supreme Court which it will be if they get the confirmation of Justice Barrett. Um, he also didn't explain what he would do if the president didn't accept the election or agree to a peaceful transition of power. Yeah, that was a, that's always a shocking moment. That's not something that's normal in our politics. And I hope it doesn't become normal, but it, I, I have expected him to have a better response to that question than the president because he is a more establishment figure. But I was wrong to expect a lot out of our vice president. Um. I think the moment where my jaw hit the floor was when he said, our nation has gone through a very challenging time this year, past tense, I guess, despite the fact <laughs> cases are on the rise again. Yeah. But I want the American people to know that from the very first day, President Donald Trump has put the health of America first. And, you know, why? Are, why? Like, who, who believes yeah, I, that? I mean, again, I think that's just actually a lie. I mean, the, the Trump administration from day one has been uh, arguing in the courts against the Affordable Care Act, which extended health insurance to 27 million Americans uh, who previously were uninsured. And the COVID crisis has killed upwards of 200,000 Americans and sickened millions more. Um, that's not a pro-health administration. It's not a pro-life administration. It's been a pro-Trump administration. It has only, he is one of the few Americans who has actually benefited from him being in office and for them to think that there's anything defensible about their record is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, one, one moment in the debate that frustrated me on, you know, both sides, I guess you could say, is when we started talking about climate change. And I think moderators and candidates have to do a better job of framing questions properly and responding to questions properly. Uh, Mike Pence basically refused uh, to admit the existence of climate change. I think, um, he said something along the lines of the climate is changing. And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, I think it is Vice President Pence. Um, and then Kamala Harris did, I think that was one of her kind of worst answers or not so great, where she, for just some odd reason, really focused on fracking. Um, anyone who watched the debate uh, knows that there was probably about five minutes dedicated to fracking, which just does not affect the vast majority of us. but. For listeners who don't know, fracking is how we extract um, natural gas from like under the earth, um, and it's it's viewed as a as a transition between fossil fuels and uh, green energy, which which is fine. But fracking is also like a dying industry, and I just don't know. And that. it's also like applies to like a minority of Americans. 
I, yeah, a, a minority of Americans in the minority of states where fracking is an issue actually support the practice because it's shown to like increase like the frequency of earthquakes because we're like shooting air into the earth, which like I'm not a geologist and I'm not going to pretend to be one. Like, yeah, that's like probably causes the earth to shake around a little bit. And but that's just like a weird point on my part. Um, but yeah, overall, climate change needs to take center stage at these debates. It is an existential crisis for our species. And I, I wish everyone had done a better job. Uh, but I, I think the Biden campaign's plan for climate change is a really good start. I just wish uh, Kamala Harris had done just a little bit better job articulating that plan and making it clear that the, the Biden campaign is a, is a pro-green energy, green solutions. Because uh, it's not only like a climate plan, it's like an economic plan to bring us out of the recession we're in, maybe depression, we don't know, but like multifaceted and like just Vice President Pence seemed out of touch when he said, put, they're gonna put your radical environmental agenda ahead of American auto workers and ahead of American jobs and American people. The whole point of the, this climate plan is to put people back to work and like right. increase investment in American companies and manufacturing. So like, right. Well, I want, I want in a later episode to do a deep dive into some of his policies. And I think climate change should be the first one that we do. Um, but yeah, those are my thoughts on the debate. Yeah. Do you have, do you have anything else? I mean, once again, like it's not going to affect the race at all. Um, it just like, kind of showcased the, yeah. the talents or lack thereof of, of either vice presidential candidate. Like the burden was on Pence to change the narrative, change the course of their campaign. He didn't, he didn't. And Kamala made a, just a, excellent points. So like, again, amounted to a wash as we'll discuss later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so up next we have a story that is kind of a blast from the past from a few years ago where it kind of came to light that the Trump administration has, has been, did and continues to um, separate children from their families at the, at the southern border. Um, the, the New York Times headline included a quote from uh, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions. It said, quote, we need to take away children, uh, which is just horrifying at face value. Um, but basically, uh, this is just a whole story about the cruelty of Trump administration policies, especially when it comes to immigration. Um, it came to light that top officials in the Justice Department pushed prosecutors to continue legal proceedings against infants um, because the Trump administration has just failed to recognize uh, the basic human rights involved with migration and the, the human debt that we owe to people uh, when, they, when they arrive at our borders with only the clothes on their back. Um, what did you think about this story, Connor? It's horrifying and shocking in all the worst ways that the Trump presidency has manifested itself. And it reminds me, and as it should remind everyone, that removing the president in this election has vast repercussions for how we treat people and just like the evilness and the heartlessness he's brought into this office and has empowered individuals in these positions to adopt these these policies is the ramifications are tenfold and it's just so sad and just but also not ex not unexpected from this man and like his worldview. I just like you have Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General, 
saying in a second call that it didn't matter how young the children were. Um, and then afterwards, after you had some obfuscation from the Justice Department and the Attorney General about like, we didn't really know what was happening. No, the a, um, a report made clear that the policy's earliest days in a five month long test on the border in Texas, Justice Department officials understood and encouraged the separation of children as an expected part of the desire to prosecute all undocumented border crossers. That's, they're evil. They're evil yeah, and heartless. <clears throat> and I don't, it's indefensible is what it is. And they're not trying to defend it. And that should say a lot. It is. They're not. Um, also from that, from that report from the Inspector General, uh, Rod Rosenstein said, quote, a senior Justice Department officials viewed the welfare of the children as the responsibility of other agencies and their duty as tracking the parents. I just don't see that as a DOG, uh, DOJ, sorry, equity, um, which is just horrifying for the Department of Justice to say, oh, these children who are in the care of the, of the federal government um, that's that's not our problem. That's that's somebody else. Somebody else has to take care of that. Just passing the buck, just just like everyone else from this administration does. I I mean, no one no one's ready to raise their hand and say, oh, it, it was my fault that these children have been mistreated and in some cases lost their lives as a result of detention on our southern border. It it purely is a problem of their own creation, of their own short sightedness, of their own cruelty. Like. No one, this is not shown to decrease border crossings. It's, it's heartless. And it just infuriates me in like why these people shouldn't have control of these departments and organizations. Right. And, and I think it also points to the need for wholesale reform of American immigration policy. Uh, and I think that includes the involvement of the Department of Homeland Security and um, kind of reevaluating its purpose um, 20 years after its creation. Uh, and, and then also it bleeds into all levels of our government because our foreign policy in Central and South America is responsible for some of these people requiring aid. And I mean, I don't see any anything from the Trump administration that says they have kind of a decided foreign policy. That seems like something that's way out of, out of Donald Trump's wheelhouse. And it just, just indicative of an entire administration that has uh, just seems, seems to have given up on the idea of running a normal executive office. In my I would opinion. argue they maybe never had that, that yeah. idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, but yes, so this is this is like a sad story. And I, I mean, these are quotes from two years ago, but children are still being separated from their parents. Um, it's and we horrifying. won't know the full impact, like the no. full awful impact of this because they're not going to release any more information. Like, no, I hope I hope that if Joe Biden is successful in next month's election, that there can be some work done to at least increase transparency about what has happened the last four years. Um, Americans need to know uh, who said what, who did what, and when, um, because, because we can't let things like this keep happening. There have to be uh, repercussions for this, like you said, evil behavior. And I hope, the, I hope a, a Democratic House and hopefully a Democratic Senate can work on legislation to increase transparency in our government. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, well, to turn the page on that, um, 
big news for Tennessee, early voting starts the 14th this Wednesday. Um, very excited. I will be thrilled to cast my ballot because I think it'll be very therapeutic just to get that <laughs> off my chest. Um, but it is important to note you do need a photo ID to show to the poll worker so you're able to vote. So make sure you have a photo ID. Which for most people is your driver's license or your passport. You cannot use a, an ID issued by your college. Yeah. Or you, but the, the driver's license can be expired, which is. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully you're not driving around with with an expired driver's license, but yeah, just in case. Um, Um, But yeah, like you said, it starts on Wednesday, the 14th and ends on October 29th. And Um, I know in Shelby County, you can vote at any polling place. It doesn't have to be your designated polling place. So that was nice for me at Rose. I for early voting. For, for early, early voting. voting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For early voting, you can vote anywhere. Yeah. That was nice for me at Rose. I was able to just vote down the street. Um, but also, I just want to ask this question of you. Like, we have a Senate race. We have an election or a presidential race. We have various House seats. But um, there's this sort of understanding that Tennessee is deep red. I want to throw these facts out there that in 2016, the Pew Research Group ranked Tennessee 49th in voter turnout. We have 50 states and then 45th in voter registration in 2016 in that cycle. Do you think Tennessee is a red state? Do you think it's an undecided state? Do you think it's a state that doesn't vote? I think Tennessee is a state that doesn't vote because the vote has been suppressed. Um, I think the Secretary of State, Trey Hargett, does everything in his power to uh, maintain the Republican supermajority in our legislature. I think he does everything in, our pow- in his power to make sure Republicans get elected to statewide office. And he does that through these repressive um, voter ID laws, through uh, laws limiting uh, how you can register people to vote, um, how you can uh, encourage people to vote. I think it's I think it's against the law to send the document to request an absentee ballot. I think I think it is against state law to do that. Um, which he is was also he was also in charge of the effort. I think last last year in 2018 that criminalized Shelby County in particular for hosting voter registration drives yeah. and then imposing like prison time if some of the the registration files were incorrect like a small percentage probably done by mistake but like yeah no so i think he is he is uh one of the worst villains of tennessee politics um but yeah i think we're a state that that doesn't vote because a lot of people feel like it doesn't matter um that being said i know here in henry county where i live we have um we have elections for county mayor sheriff some local stuff like that that's interesting um and important to to stay up to date about um but yeah i mean i wish i wish we uh i wish we had a government that wanted us to vote but i i assume you have the same thoughts but yeah like i in no way should it be this hard to vote in person absentee and like we can't forget it's all by design like the less people that vote, the better the party, the Republican Party does in Tennessee. Yeah. That's, that's the whole strategy. Absolutely. And, okay, well, yeah, early voting. If you live in Tennessee, please, please, please early vote. 
um, or vote on election day, which is November 3rd, but there will probably be lines. So early voting is so nice. If you, you just have to like look for your individual county's times. I know mine, um, we have to vote at the election commission um, and there's hours every day, you can go do that. Um, but okay, another story kind of about early voting, uh, some, some issues in Texas. So on Friday, a US district judge ruled against Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who is a Republican, um, in a decision that included an injunction barring the state from limiting each county in the state to one ballot drop-off box. So what happened before that, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, sent out a directive that said each county gets one ballot drop-off box um, so that people who have requested ballots can then drop them off. If they don't feel comfortable sending them back in the mail. Right, because as illustrated in previous episodes, that is a tricky, tricky situation right now. Um, so a, a district judge said, no, you can't do that, injunction against it. But then, since then, since Friday, and today's Sunday, so they acted pretty quick, an appeals court stayed the district judge's ruling, which means that the, at right now, the governor's directive will stand until a higher court can rule on the issue. So I don't know when early voting starts in Texas. I, assume I think it's it the 13th already... to the 14th. Yeah, I assumed it started or has, will start soon. Um, so what that means is that large counties such as Harris County, which is home to Houston, I believe. Uh-huh. It's the uh, county, yeah. And has uh, a population over 4 million people will have one ballot drop-off box. And if I can just put this into proportion, because this made me mad. 4.7 million people live in Harris County. That is more than the populations of Louisiana, Kentucky, Oregon, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Utah, Iowa, Nevada, Arkansas, Mississippi, Kansas, New Mexico, Nebraska, West Virginia, Idaho, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Montana, Rhode Island, Delaware, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming. And there's only one box for all those people to put their ballots in. There were states. There are states smaller than this one county in Texas. This is outrageous. It's, it's voter suppression. Um, the Washington Post did an article about it, obviously, and uh, the district judge uh, said, uh, called the governor's decree, quote, perplexing, particularly because there will be multiple drop-off points per county on election day, and because the state had already opened satellite drop-off locations within counties before the governor's October 1st proclamation. So it's like, We've had since March to know that election day was probably going to be impacted by COVID and that mail-in ballots would probably be more prevalent this year. And Republican governors like Greg Abbott have just kind of sat on their asses and, you know, have now decided that they don't think everybody should get to vote. And Connor, I made this joke earlier. It's, I, I still think it's a little funny. I'm just thinking about the concept of one box being filled with like 2 million ballots. And I'm, I'm no science major, but I don't think there's a box big enough for that, personally. Mm. Hey, don't, <laughs> don't take away the STEM people from working yeah, on the vaccine I mean, right now. Everything is bigger in Texas, but I don't think the ballot boxes are, personally. No. <laughs> Again, I, I've said this in past episodes, like the key to Republican electoral success is making sure people can't vote. 
Yeah. And this this proves it. Like that's that's the game they're playing now because to give away our next segment, things aren't looking good for them electorally. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this this kind of just made me think about how we haven't we haven't talked about this much, but because there is a census this year, it means that uh, new congressional boundaries will start to uh, will be drawn by state legislatures that get elected this year. And Texas is one state that Democrats are targeting to flip the state legislature in order to have a seat at the table when it comes to congressional redistricting, because uh, Texas is like an incredibly gerrymandered state. And there is opportunity for Democrats to gain several um, House seats and kind of uh, produce a House delegation more representative of the Texan population. Uh, so it's just really important that people in Texas are able to, to, to exercise their right to vote. And uh, one ballot box per county just isn't quite cutting it, in my mind. A census by which, like, a whole other story, but the Trump administration is in court right now fighting to end early. Yeah, just trying to stop counting the number of people in the country, mm-hmm. which seems mm-hmm. silly to me. Um, it's, it's not good. Uh, one thing about the Texas thing that... You know, at least they have ballot drop-off boxes. Tennessee does not. So mm-hmm. they've, they've got a leg up on us there. But this is a population that is accustomed to having ballot drop-off boxes, I assume. And it, it just seems stupid to be doing this. And this is all while Texas is experiencing a spike in COVID. And you might think that the governor would be preoccupied um, trying to keep Texans alive rather than trying to limit their right to vote. But that's wishful thinking on my part. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> next, next up on the list, Connor, give us, give us your take on the ongoing stimulus negotiations in Congress. Well, depending on what steroid medication the president is on, the deals are already on or off. Um, yeah. All right. Now I think they're off. I didn't think he's being waned off his medication. So that's not a good sign. Um, yeah, you know, this whole thing about like stimulus negotiations kind of falls on me for deaf ears because the House presented to the Senate months ago a heroes package that would give all the money needed to buffer the economy, um, provide jobs, provide government funding for local and state governments. It would make the picture a lot rosier for an incumbent and it would hurt Democrat successes, even though it's the right thing to do. So, you and, know. And the Democrats are begging Republicans to make a deal because Democrats yes. um, aren't the best at playing like hard, hard power politics. And they actually want to help people, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, basically what you said, the White House just flip flops every single day. Um, well, it's not, it's not the White House. It's yeah, the president. I, yeah, I, I conflate the two. I, I, I yeah. Uh, but basically, kind of the, the dynamic is uh, the president slash the White House want, like, very specific, like, piecemeal legislation. So they want, like, the Paycheck Protection Program funding to be, like, redirected. But Speaker Pelosi is, uh, sees through that and says, no, like, we need a comprehensive bill so that we can help everybody, not just like small businesses which like small businesses are obviously hurting and they need help but so like so does everybody else 
Um, and then the Senate uh, with Mitch McConnell is basically, they have basically just said, we're not going to be able to do anything till after the election because they're too busy uh, ramming through a far right uh, Supreme Court nominee. Um, and then also a lot of Republicans, including Senator Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee, um, not her biggest fan. Uh, they, she and her, some of her colleagues, such as Mike Lee and Rick. COVID Scott, patient Mike Lee. Yeah, COVID patient Mike forget. Lee. Um, think that a large comprehensive COVID package would hurt Republican chances in the election. She is not on the ballot. So I don't know why she's that worried. I think she doesn't want to be in the Senate major, uh, minority, but that, uh, that cake may have already been baked as we will see uh, in the next segment. I, yeah, I mean, Tennessee's delegation is going to be Republican, but I, I'm not sure about some other states. So she, she might be right to be nervous. As always, the political calculus doesn't add up when you have a, a minority a party, an opposition party, begging the the majority, the incumbents, to accept legislation that would help their reelection chances. Because by all indications, Donald Trump is given vast, vastly better marks on handling the economy, though that's questionable and probably wrong. <laughs> and like that's what this bill would do. Like it would restart the job growth that is slowed because its funding's run out. It it would do everything needed for the president to claim that the economy is coming back and he's doing a great job and he's not doing it because it would, it would tear apart the lie that he's, he's known what to do this whole time. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I also think he maybe isn't that great at governing, you know, hot take, hot take. Um, I have one quote from Pelosi's letter to the house democratic caucus. I'd like to just read a quote from it. She said, quote, when the president talks about wanting a bigger relief package, his proposal appears to mean that he wants more money at his discretion to grant or withhold rather than agreeing on language prescribing how we honor our workers, crush the virus, and put money in the pockets of our workers. And I think that is such a good closing message for Democrats going into this election. I think Nancy Pelosi is very confident about her caucus's ability to expand in November. Um, she knows she's about to win uh, knock on wood, hopefully some seats. Um, and I mean, she's, she's laying a case before the American people that says, look, we are working for you and Republicans are playing politics. because." And the majority of Americans want stimulus, like a COVID relief bill before a Supreme Court nominee. That's yeah, like, it's like I would, 70%. I would very much appreciate uh, a stimulus check. I, I think college students were very sadly left out of the first round of stimulus checks. Mm-hmm. And I hope they don't forget us this time because mm-hmm. we're, we're hurting too. Um, <laughs> oh, a little bit joking, but a little bit not. I, I don't know. There needs to be something in there for us. There needs to be something. Um, okay, Connor, let's... Let's talk about a big slew of polls that have come out in the past couple of weeks. Um, most notably, an ABC uh, poll that came out, I guess, early this morning, late last night, sometime, mm-hmm. um, that has Joe Biden leading Donald Trump by 12 points nationally. And then that same poll shows that Biden holds a 17-point lead on who Americans trust most to handle the coronavirus pandemic. And finally, Joe Biden is also leading by double digits among women, independents, and moderates. What do you, what do you think? 
Like, yes, of course. <laughs> like, you have, uh, like, I don't know. Like, this is what I expected. Like, in fact, it should be more because, you know, the president has done nothing to handle the pandemic despite what Mike Pence will talk over people about. And, like, of course, he's leading nationally because we don't have a president right now. We have a coronavirus patient in like a hospital bed in the White House. Infecting <laughs> the Oval Office. Infecting the Oval Office and infecting his staff and his supporters because he doesn't care. He yeah. doesn't care about the pandemic. Yeah. Well, I'll say it. I am surprised that Joe Biden is leading by this much. I think, well, I think when you consider coronavirus, maybe it's not surprising, but looking back to the primaries, I would not have expected him to be doing so well. Um, so I am pleasantly surprised by this news. I am constantly anticipating the day when we wake up and the poll has narrowed significantly to like one or two points. The time's running out though. Time is I, running out. People are already voting. People like, are voting and people <laughs> have been voting. Yeah, so that's good news. Um, just quickly before we get to the Senate race updates, mm -hmm. I want to... Like, help people understand why these polls are different than 2016 mm -hmm. with our fingers crossed that they actually are different because in 2016 Hillary Clinton showed uh, decent polling against Donald Trump never as steady of a double digit lead that Joe Biden is displaying but just a few reasons about why we should maybe trust this poll a little bit more um, but also Again, just for one, polls are not predictive. They're a snapshot. So Right. Like, please go vote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but one, I think the biggest uh, thing that I see, uh, or two big things, is there are fewer undecided voters this year, obviously, because we have become more polarized in the last four years. So it makes more sense um, that that's the case. And then also, uh, pollsters are paying more attention to education because people who vote for Democrats um, trend uh, more educated and Republic, uh, like traditionally educated, not like, I'm not saying Republicans are stupid or Republican voters are stupid. I'm not saying that, but Democrat, Democratic voters tend to have higher degrees. Republicans tend to have um, uh, less education. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? If, if anything? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think the electorate changed somewhat in 2016. And I think it was partly reflected in the polls, but also just like a culmination of just so many events and just mm -hmm. like, I don't know if polls would ever have been able to capture just sort of what the electorate was like in 2016 when you had Donald Trump running against Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And, I don't know. I guess another thing, Joe Biden is viewed much more favorably by the electorate and he is more trusted. And I think those are two very key things. Hillary Clinton, um, was not trusted by the electorate um, and people can't be expected to vote for people who they don't trust. And you also mentioned this before, but Biden's lead is right now is 69 to 25 among self-described moderates, which would be the largest margin since for Democrats since 1988. Um, yes. And I think that's reflective. Like, I don't think this cycle we've seen as much coverage of third party candidates as we did in 2016. I remember a lot of people were talking about Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I have not heard a single news piece about who, 
whoever it is this time. Yeah, you Joe say that. I saw a Joe Jorgensen sign in my hometown uh, yesterday. So wow. her campaign is getting getting fired up in rural West Tennessee. Tennessee is not red or blue. It's green. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what it is. A Jorgensen win in Tennessee. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I think I think we can trust these polls a little bit more. I think we still have to go vote. But those are my thoughts on the national uh, race. You don't want to be in Donald Trump's position right now, like no, no. If you had to pick, you want to be Joe Biden. Um, yeah. So yeah. like, things are trending good, but like everyone needs to vote. Is is what it is. Yeah. Okay. Now we're gonna run through a big list of Senate races. So just buckle up. We'll just take them one at a time. So make it make it easy. Um, so first up, we have South Carolina, where Jamie Harrison, who is the Democrat challenging incumbent Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, broke a third quarter fundraising record by raising $57 million in the past three months. Um, the previous record was Beto O'Rourke in 2018 against Ted Cruz. I think he raised like 37 or $40 million. So this is like a big, like a big record break. Um, polling there is not great like it's tied but there just haven't been a lot of polls so it's hard to know which not great but also no one could have predicted south carolina would be a, a competitive democrat democratic race mm -hmm. so and also not to rain on everyone's parade but like you said like beto o'rourke raised a lot of money in texas and he came in within margins of winning so yeah. like yeah not not to money not, money doesn't mean you're gonna win but but it sure is hard to win without money again i'd rather be jamie harrison in this situation yes, yes. jamie harrison is also a super cool candidate and i'm super excited um for the potential of him being in the u.s senate he seems like a very fun guy um not that that's like the qualification necessary but i mean it's nice you'd grab a beer with him <laughs> i yeah i would i would um of course um okay so next up, we have Maine, where Sarah Gideon, the Democratic challenger to uh, incumbent Senator uh, Susan Collins, is leading by an average of 3.7 points, which is phenomenal. I'm very excited about this. Connor, do you think Susan Collins is finally going to lose? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> Okay, she's, good. She's not good for Maine, and Maine, Mainers know that, I guess. Maine. <laughs> Mainers know. Maine also has voted for Democrats for president in recent years. Um, so it's uh, very odd that Susan Collins has been able to hold on to that seat. But hey, prior, she's a moderate. She's a maverick. Prior, yeah. Prior prior to Trump, she was she was kind of a respected member of the Senate. And Which is what she, you see with almost all these races. You see mostly establishment true. Republicans who have thrown away their credibility to hitch themselves to the Trump train. Oh, yep. And and that's it. That is all, folks. Um, yeah. yeah. So go Sarah Gideon. Um, now to Arizona, down to the Sun Belt, um, where Mark Kelly, who is so cool, also. Um, former astronaut. He, yeah, former astronaut, um, also husband of former United States Representative Gabby Giffords, um, is leading incumbent Martha McSally by 7.2 points. Um, Martha McSally was appointed to this Senate seat uh, after she lost in 2018 to Democrat uh, Kirsten Cinema. So like she's never won a, a statewide election. 
Like, not putting the best candidate forward. There clearly, right she's now. not going to win this time. Again, knock on wood. Like, I don't want to jinx anything, but it just doesn't look good for these. Drivers. Again, not enough Arizonans were, were, were fasting their meals for her, and I'm disappointed. <laughs> I'm yeah, disappointed. I don't think she's had luck raising a lot of money. Um, and then also, kind of more Arizona news, um, Cindy McCain has endorsed Joe Biden and is currently actively campaigning for him. Um, which is really phenomenal and I think will mean a lot to a lot of Arizonans. And I think that will bode well for the Biden campaign in the Sun Belt generally. Um, okay, so Mississippi, where Mike Espy, who is a former United States representative and United States Secretary of Agriculture, um, is challenging Cindy Hyde-Smith. Connor, I looked, I couldn't find any good polling. Um, they're just, it seems like Cindy Hyde-Smith is ahead. She's but, doing worse, again, she's doing worse than she should be facing a Democratic challenger in Mississippi. Yes. So, again, he did face her in 2018 when the fit, when there was a special election to fulfill the rest of the term. Mm-hmm. Um, and he lost by six or eight points. But again, like... Which is not a ton. No. It's, that's like, it sounds like a lot. Like, that's not a ton. He would also be uh, Mississippi's first black senator since, uh, like, Reconstruction. And, like, things in electorate have changed since then. And I don't know. Again, like, you sh- <laughs> none of these people should be in their positions, but they are because yeah. they're, they're bad at politics, one, especially <laughs> now. And two, they've hitched themselves to a president who who's not good at politics either. So it mm-hmm. all kind of collapses on itself. Yeah. And then not to mention like the merits of these democratic challengers. Like these are like phenomenal candidates that yeah. we've been able to recruit for these, for these races. Yeah. Um, another one is in Iowa where Teresa Greenfield uh, is leading incumbent Senator Joni Ernst by nearly five points uh, in a state carried by Donald Trump uh, and a, a much tighter race. Uh, for the presidency than there seems to be for the Senate. I mean, it looks like Joni Ernst is in serious trouble. Um, she has, like you said, attached herself at the hip to Donald Trump. And I think Iowa, Iowans are seeing, seeing through that and being really receptive to a Democratic campaign that's paying attention to grassroots issues or to, to bread and butter issues. And, and yeah, I, none, of these, none of these things are surprising, but they give me optimism. And I think that's, I think that's what we need right now. Well, and anecdotally, I want to go back to the Mississippi race. Sure. The the few times I've turned on cable TV, which is not cable, but just like not not as the streamers, not not the streaming services. <laughs> I've always I've only seen Mike Epsi ads, and like he's he's targeting the South Haven for listeners. South Haven's North Mississippi, and I bet the media market bleeds over between Memphis, Shelby County, and South Haven. South Haven's like a suburb of memphis and like of shelby county technically i mean but it's not and so i think you're seeing like he's spending money in areas where you wouldn't expect democratic democrat democratic candidates to be competitive but just like in all of these races and national polling like you're seeing suburbs become more blue in this race absolutely i don't know um another race we're watching colorado uh, where former governor and former candidate for the Democratic nomination for president, John Hickenlooper, uh, leads incumbent Cory Gardner by nine points. Um, Connor, I think it's weird, first of all, that Colorado has a Republican senator. Um, that, I, I haven't looked at the history of that, but that seems like a fluke to me. Hey, uh, he's maybe, a moderate. Maybe, maybe Colorado is 
more recently democratic than I give it credit for, um, but it seems kind of safe at this point. So I'm very optimistic about uh, former Governor Hickenlooper's chances in this race. Cory Gardner, once again, has sold his soul. He uh, supports the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, which I don't think a majority of Coloradans would agree with. I think it's a pro-choice state and uh, they like healthcare out there, like we all do. So yeah. they're ready They're ready for some, for some new leadership. And before we get to our next state, which is sort of an outlier, but um, I just want to say in general, like even if some of these races turn out to be democratic losses, like, it's putting pressure on Republicans to realize their path to electoral victory is getting smaller and smaller, like yeah. nationwide in states where they shouldn't be competitive. They're now on the back foot. Especially in states like uh, South Carolina and Mississippi, we're yeah. forcing, or the Democratic Party kind of writ large, is forcing the Republican Party to spend money in traditionally safe seats where they would otherwise be spending that money trying to flip um, democratically held seats such as Doug Jones in Alabama, um, yeah. who is in some hot water in his race. He doesn't have an easy path, but but their Republican resources are spread really thin right now, and they're not having um, phenomenal fundraising numbers like Democrats are. And that's that's the the disadvantage of Trump's unpopularity, I guess. Like he's just horribly he's unpopular, and that has some ramifications. Mm-hmm. Turns out they got hooked. They got they hooked. Got hooked. And now it's having <laughs> its consequences. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to finish up with Kentucky, um, where former fighter pilot Amy McGrath is challenging uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, he's, he's leading. Um, I'm comfortable guessing he's going to win this race. Um, Amy McGrath ran uh, for the House of Representatives in 2018 in a seat that is viewed as, uh, if not competitive, uh, it leans Republican. But in 2018, with the blue wave that Democrats saw, I I would have expected her to do better in that race, and she didn't. And I was personally disappointed to see her uh, nominated to run this race because I, Connor, you know this, listeners, you might know this. I live very close to Kentucky. I have family in Kentucky, so I like, consider myself like generally aware of like the political environment there. And to me, Amy McGrath doesn't really fit the state. Um, I think she is also not that talented of a politician. Um, I think she's flip-flopped on a lot of issues that were that are important to just take a stance on. Um, things like that. Uh, do you have any thoughts about this race, Connor? I don't want to just like trash a Democrat, um, but I, I just, I think it's important to stay grounded. She's also raised an absolute ton of money. And I think that money can be spent elsewhere to help it us can, win. It can. And I think she offered such a compelling narrative in 2018 that fizzled out. And I think the concept of putting up of her as a contrast to Mitch McConnell like it sounds good like it it's something that would fit on paper it works but it just doesn't work in reality and i think also just the concept of beating mitch mcconnell is just like a very good like monetizing Mm -hmm. strategy i think that's why she's raised a lot of money is because like the concept of like beating mitch mcconnell in his own state is like it's like you know one solution to the problem it's a headline yeah but it's it's not feasible that's not to say like 
Kentuckians don't elect Democrats. They elected Andy Bashir as governor. So like, yeah. I don't know. It's possible, but it's it's very challenging. And yeah. yeah, I don't know that any of our listeners are donating to her campaign. No. Um, but, but maybe maybe think of a closer race. To send but the money, money even if it's not closer, the money would go a lot further in media markets in Mississippi. Like, yes. Yes. And that's a race. That's that's a real race. It's compared a, or to, South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Not that honestly, we didn't mention this. We don't need any of those states um, to retake the Senate majority. No. So we're leading in enough states right now to again majority. Don't want to be in any of the incumbents' positions right now. Right, right. Because even even the McConnell race is closer than they would like. So he's having to spend money on radio and TV ads that otherwise could be spent elsewhere defending mm-hmm. more vulnerable candidates. Um, okay, well that's whew, a lot of polls, a lot of states. Um, big picture, good news for Democrats, um, which is nice to hear <laughs> for once. Um, so now we're going to do news too dumb to be true. Connor, I know you have something, but I'll start and then I'll let you take it away. Um, so this week we have a statement from Representative Jason Smith of Missouri's 8th Congressional District. He wrote a letter to the British ambassador to the United States asking her to tell Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to stop, quote, using their foreign titles to campaign against President Trump and interfere in our election. And (laughs) they heard they said no foreign interference. It's so funny to me. And then what what this is a response to is uh, Prince Harry and, and Meghan Markle, like, released a statement that encouraged Americans to, quote, reject hate speech, misinformation, and online negativity. And it's so funny to me that this Missouri congressman interpreted this as interference on the part of, like, the Democratic Party. Like, yes, we are against hate speech, misinformation, and online negativity. But it's just funny that that's interpreted as an attack on Donald Trump. Um, well, so that just sounds too dumb to be true. Well, I'd like to thank Harry and Megan for, I guess, attending one of the Be Best lectures hosted by Melania. <laughs> because you know what? That mes- message resonated with them. They did. They got it. They got it. Okay, Connor. Connor, tell us, tell us yours. Okay. Um, not even, I guess, like a week since his father was released from the hospital to now stay at a hospital in his home and is still fighting the the coronavirus donald trump jr has held an indoor rally in florida where the governor has removed all restrictions on you know everything the scientists have said told us to do and of course he has because again to get on my soapbox the trump campaign doesn't care about its own voters that's it and you saw this yesterday when you had like 300 500 people jammed together in front of the south lawn in front of the patty or the porch so you could have donald trump kind of rant for 18 minutes from a balcony from a balcony i read that they were paid to be there i I saw that too (laughs) just so like i like it's sad because like these people and not to like minimize them but like the Trump campaign doesn't care about their health. They know what they're doing is wrong. They know that they're putting lives in danger, but they don't care. They do not care. And then, like Herman Cain is looking up at him and saying like, <laughs> why, what lesson did you not learn? 
Herman Cain died. That's right. Herman Cain, former presidential candidate, died of coronavirus after attending from a Trump rally. Yeah, from a Trump rally in Oklahoma, and that's you know, it's sad. Okay, second piece of news I found: after refusing to denounce white supremacists and instead asking them to stand by, Home Alone's two-star Donald Trump received an endorsement <laughs> by the Taliban this week. <laughs> Dang it. So, like, you know, he's doing his best to show that he can coalition build by uniting terrorism forces at home and abroad. Oh, gosh. That's not funny. Oh, but it is too dumb to be true. And that's that's the purpose of this segment. Uh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Connor, mm. give us your recommendation for the week. We're ready for it. I have two little ones. Okay. Four PSAs. One, okay. I got my flu shot. It's easy. So get your flu shot. And then also we touched on it earlier, but also if you live in Tennessee, go early vote. Oh. Safely. Wear a mask. Yeah. And okay, so here's my real recommendation. <clears throat> a couple nights ago, I watched Dolly Parton's Here I Am documentary on Netflix. And let me just tell you, what a woman. Just a real I'll say it, sometimes a chameleon. Very broad audience. She does what she has to do to be famous. And, you know, she's, kind, she's real by being fake. I don't know. As, as she said uh, one time, I don't know, interview or something, it costs a lot to look this cheap. And yeah. I, I salute her for that. But, like, what a woman. She really did it all. And yeah. she continues to do it all. Like, she's, she's old still, and she's still okay. she's doing movies and Christmas albums. And, like, good for her. Yeah. So, flu shot, early vote, Dolly Parton. That's Yeah. That's this week's episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And yeah, so we're going to, we'll plug in some interviews with uh, some voters after we finish. So thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we hope you have a good week. Uh, no presidential debate this week, but we will keep you posted about uh, any, any upcoming ones. Um, thank you. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to the Citizen's Guide. Um, will you introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, sure. Hey, guys. My name is Lauren Moore. I am a junior at Rhodes College. I'm a political science major, and I'm from Memphis. All right. Thank you, Lauren. Um, so first question is, what is your voting plan this year? My voting plan is to early vote. And in Memphis, we have like a pretty long time to early vote, and we have a lot of locations. So that's usually what I do because there's less people especially during COVID. Um, what's motivating you to vote this year? What's motivating me to vote is the fact that, well, whoever we elect for president has a lot of nominations that they're going to have to put in place. Also, we get to vote for the Tennessee State Senate because like state elections matter too. So it's just like looking at all the issues that'll be affected by who we put in charge. So that's what's motivating me to vote. Yeah, that's great. Um, and Lauren, what are you doing to get other people to vote this year, such as like friends, your family, you know, whoever? So with like friends and peers, I like to use social media a lot, like posting information about checking to make sure you've registered, like make sure like, you know, the dates to like submit, like if you want to have a mail-in ballot, stuff like that. Um, for my family and like friends that are in town, sometimes I usually like to coordinate when we go. So we like keep each other accountable for voting. And then for my grandma, my mom and I are helping her like put in her mail-in application vote because you have to have a reason in Tennessee. So we're helping her get that together because she's old. So it's better for her to mail-in vote during COVID times. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. 
Lauren and I voted together at Rhodes. We went we to the did. early voting place. Oh, that's nice. Yep. yep. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Uh, welcome, Justin, to the Citizen's Guide. Thank you so much for, for doing this for us. If you want to start by just introducing yourself, name, major, college, where you're from. Yeah, of course. No, uh, my name is Justin Terrell. I'm a uh, junior here at Rhodes College. I'm a political science and philosophy double major. Um, yeah, no, I... So what is your voting plan this year, Justin? Are you early voting, absentee ballot voting, voting in person? Yeah, no. So uh, I registered, uh, my home state's California. Um, so I registered for absentee balloting, uh, balloting. So my, yeah, so everything that's getting sent to my house um, in Memphis at the moment, um, I've double checked like three times. Uh, yeah, so I plan on mailing my vote back. Uh, it should be getting there within the next few days is what the alert I got. Very cool. And Justin, what is motivating you to vote this year? Like, why is it so important to you? Um, I really just, um, for a while, it was a lot of different issues I felt passionate about, which included, uh, especially the environment, um, a lot of the uh, racial issues that have been arising in the United States, um, and a lot of well understood um, of what's actually happening around them. Yeah, that totally, yes. All that is amazing. Um, what are you doing to uh, get other people out to vote, whether it's friends, family, strangers, using social media? What, how are you engaging with the electorate? Well, I think a big part of this is, uh, I mean, obviously social media has been a, uh, a huge, huge like way to reach a lot of the younger generation um, and a lot of the uh, people who are typically um, more ambiguous on how they feel politically. Um, but I think especially when reaching to older generations and I see it within my family as well, um, the way I think is most effective to persuade people to vote is by just talking about the issues with them. Um, typically, I think, especially in this case, People who would be voting for Trump are not necessarily Trumpians, but they're ideological Republicans. Um, and I feel like a lot of their beliefs in the political system are misguided, um, not because I believe their uh, views are wrong or I'm not trying to tell people that their views are wrong, um, but it seems that we have a, um, a lot of issues that, are, that can be alleviated and discussed well that kind of show the truth of the situation rather than the um, kind of this political mist that kind of like covers and shrouds the actual truth of the situation. Um, so I find that talking to people um, and kind of like asking them to explain their opinions and explain their views um, is a really good pathway to kind of motivating them to vote and especially to be more politically active and aware more than anything. Honestly, about the disappointment and disgust they've had for the, uh, the Trump administration so far. Um, I haven't been the happiest with the Democrats um, especially uh, the way they treated Bernie um, going throughout the primary, um, given that I do fall very left on a lot of issues. Um, but I think a lot of the reason I've chosen to vote for Biden and uh, choosing to vote now and why I think it's so active and important um, is because we're kind of at a precipice of unknown for American politics. Um, I think, especially highlighted in the debates, um, we're in an era where there's such... I want to say disappointment in the White House and how we understand a lot of these same political issues um, that would have arisen earlier. And you can even see by comparing it, uh, just taking for the debate, for example, if you were to uh, compare it to the 2012 debates uh, with Romney and Obama, you see that there's like 
been a huge decline in courtesy and in, I mean, political customs that have been like almost obliterated um, in the, especially in the 2020 debate, where it becomes more about bullying each other um, and kind of taking cheap shots than it is about discussing the actual issues at hand. Um, and I think to avoid another four years of that, um, it takes the vote, voting for Biden and especially just an active voter, a voter base to be yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. Thank you again, Justin, for joining us. Those were those were great answers. And it was great to hear, hear your perspective. Yeah, thank of course. You. I love Susan's guide. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Justin. Okay, welcome, Logan, to the Citizen's Guide. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, if you want to start by just introducing yourself, where you're from, where you go to college, stuff like that. Uh, hi, my name is Logan Rayburn. I am from Silver Spring, Maryland. I go to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, I am double majoring in Spanish and biology. Uh, yeah, I guess that's, that's about it. So what's your voting plan this year, Logan? So my plan for voting is uh, mail-in ballot. So I actually already, so I already got my um, mail-in ballot in my email and I printed it up and I printed a letter and I plan on sending it in sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, and I guess, I don't know how other states do it. Maryland has a uh, voting tracker. So apparently you can like track uh, when your mail or when your like mail-in ballot is like collected and counted. So that makes me feel uh, a lot safer about mail-in voting, at least, I don't know, for my state. Cause I know there's national, uh, I guess, worry over mail-in voting. Um, so yeah, and also uh, I'm in Memphis right now, so I don't really want to drive 13 hours home <laughs> to vote in a state that's going to like go blue by an overwhelming margin. So, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wish every state had that vote tracking. I think that's a really unique thing. Um, so what is motivating you to vote this year? Like why, why is it important to you that your vote gets counted? Well, I guess... Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess it's like the first time I'm registered to vote because I mean, I'm just, I like turned 18 one and a half years ago. So I forget, is this the first time I can vote? Maybe, I, I think I could have voted in the primaries and I wasn't registered, but yeah. So, all right, this is the first time I'm registered to vote. So that's pretty cool. Um, I don't know, like just to like try to have some sort of voice in politics. I haven't really been paying attention uh, much to politics until, or I didn't pay a lot of attention until um, the Trump presidency, I guess. Uh, and I definitely want to vote uh, against that personally. Um, although I still feel like my vote doesn't like matter that much because of the electoral college and like the way like uh, voting in states works. But, you know, I'm still gonna vote uh, in like the off chance that all the people who are voting for the candidate I want to win decide not to vote for that candidate in Maryland, which I think is very unlikely, but uh, yeah, I'll still, I'll still vote just cause. Cool. So what are you getting, what are you doing to get other people to vote? So like your friends or family, I guess like social media or like any. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess most of it, honestly, most people just like tried to get me to vote, <laughs> tried to get me to vote, honestly. Um, I don't know. I just, I talk about like 
voting with friends a lot, I guess, but all of them are already going to vote. I don't think I really have any friends who aren't planning on voting, and I don't think I have any family members who aren't planning on voting. Uh, I think, like, I think I'm the last person to register to vote from, like, all my high school friends, maybe. Um, so that's, kind of, I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. I'm, okay. I'm, like, I'm younger than some of them, but, like, it's still kind of, like, I should have registered, like. <laughs> better, better late than never. Yeah, but, yeah, better late than never, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not really doing anything, I guess. That's okay. <laughs> that's okay. About it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Talking about it, that's something. Just like yeah. having those conversations is really important. Um, all right. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining Ooh. us, Logan. Um, thank you for having me. Yeah.